and uh, can I get the refill? <gasps> you have a unicorn horn. Don't ask. Can I have one, please? You'd be welcome to this one if I knew how it worked. The unicorn took a sudden vacation, but he wanted to ensure the portals stayed working. Oh yeah, that beach house in Seychelles. I told him not to go into that timeshare. He's not one for listening. I don't know how to use this thing. Does that horn come with user manual, perhaps? I wish. He only said it would last until he returns from vacation, and I'd figure it out. I tore three shirts today just trying to get dressed. This season of the Bug Hunters Cafe is made possible by Soft Terrific, Mousepaw Media, and Manning Publications. Sorry, I wasn't paying attention. I was looking at this flyer for a timeshare. What'd you say? Oh, nothing. Sorry! She's been knocking over everything today with that unicorn horn. There's gotta be a better way to keep the portals running. I'm sure. But you know unicorn. Instant gratification. Yeah, that's him. Well, maybe Tomaj Lalek needs to talk to him about trade-offs. That's who we're having coffee with. He's a staff software engineer at Dremio and a technical trainer at Bottega IT Mines. He also co-authored the book, Software Mistakes and Trade-Offs, with John Ski. I wish I could do a trade-off with Annie. I want a unicorn horn. It might be more trouble than it's worth. Oh, hey, Tomaj, pull up a chair. Hi, hi. Welcome. Oh. Hey, it's good to see you. What are you going to have for drink? I always bother Jason uh, to get me something amazing. Well, you always get the same thing. It's the uh, double shot espresso without any coffee. Still don't know how they make that. With the rainbow sparkles. With the <laughs> rainbow sparkles. Can I get you anything to drink, Tomash? It might be just a Coke. Okay. I can definitely do that. Would you Would you like classic Coke, or would you like we pulled it out of the year it was invented, Coke? Yeah, it's classic. Classic, for sure. All right. I'll go grab that for you. So, Tomas, tell me about trade-offs. What was the biggest trade-off of your life? Is it about engineering or in general? Your choice. I mean, when you, I think the place where you live is the most important trade-off. I mean, if you live closer to your family, then of course you are closer, you can meet with them more often. But on the other hand, you maybe you may lack some opportunities, right? Or maybe the climate is not so good. Uh, so I think that's the biggest trade-off. I mean, I'm living in Poland. Uh, so for example, right now, maybe in a month or so, the weather will start getting really bad. Uh, but, you know, I could go to Spain or somewhere else, but my family, I would, wouldn't be able to see them. Right, so that's the biggest trade-off for me. Hmm. It's a really good answer. I think it's the same for me. <gasps> I think you find uh, you have found the universal trade-off. <laughs> Maybe the unicorn should have thought about that before he got that timeshare in the Seychelles. Here's your uh, drink, Tomaj, and uh, here's your usual bouillon. Thank you. So, what led you to write a book about trade-offs in software? I mean, since the beginning of my career, I was like passionate about software. It's not like I uh, only did 
did that like nine to five job, but I, I've tried to read a lot, learn a lot and observe a lot of things. And see, I think after two years, I've started noticing some patterns, decisions uh, that, you know, each team need to make. And it's also regarding code on the really low level, like which pattern to choose, but also at the higher level, like architecture, uh, do you want to go into either microservices or this small application that works good in your context? Uh, so I've started noticing those problems and discussions. Uh, and I've started like having a personal Google Doc, basically, with all those uh, most important decisions. And then I was able to get back to it, you know, after half a year, one year or something like this and try to learn on mistakes, sometimes mistakes, right? Sometimes good decisions, but yeah. And also what was important is that I didn't, you know, jump uh, to come from one company to another, like every year or so, but I've stayed like four years, like even for, for the Allegro group that I was working, it was like around four years, data stacks also around four years. Uh, so I was able to see how the system evolved and performed in the, in the after, after years. So during the runtime, uh, from this perspective, so that was uh, the initial spark for this book. So it sounds like it's difficult to understand the implications of trade-offs if your involvement in the project is very short-term. Yes, yes, I think that's that's a correct statement. Yeah, because if you are short-term, maybe you want to. I mean, you have a conflict of interests. Maybe you want to learn new technology and maybe just use it in this specific project because I will learn that. But you will not maintain that, so uh, there is no this phase of looking at the system later, only at the beginning when you can you know, experiment, use some new uh, great technology. I mean, this is this specific aspect. I've covered that in the last chapter of my book. So it's like about keeping up to date with trends versus cost of maintenance of your code. And so those technologies like reactive programming or you know, some new framework like Spring Framework in Java ecosystem and so on. Uh, so sometimes it's not good in your context and how to decide if it is or not. I had a very good discussion about that uh, with the client around the time it, uh, when Electron was uh, getting popular. And they wanted to migrate their Android app uh, fully to Electron. And I was like, let's wait a year or two to see if it gets traction and support and everything. And client was, but maybe it won't exist in two years. We should do it now. And I'm like, do you really want to invest time into something that may not exist in two years? <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, clients uh, also love shiny new things, especially if they are blockchain and AI related. Oh, yes. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've seen a fair bit of that in uh, my specialty is in legacy code. So I I'm I'm a consultant and I help modernize. And well, sometimes I'm seeing consequences of that shiny object kind of mentality from previously, and it resulting in using a library which was you know really popular and trendy at the time, but then which just didn't deliver on its promises. But then, you know, I've, I've certainly seen the other side of it, too, where, you know, looking at one project where the logging was literally import logging. 
it was, you know, the Python built-in logging library, which is a good library for logging, but not for certain situations. And um, suffice to say, this is one of the situations where it was definitely they were having to manually work around some of the some of the wrinkles and where maybe doing some research into logging libraries would have been beneficial in that case. So I, I've definitely seen both sides. Yeah, same thing applies for, for immutability. I was covering that. I mean, immutability is a great concept, but we also need to have some kind of a native support in language, let's say. I mean, there are some trade-offs around that because you will have more memory pressure, right? more usage of memory. And if you have immutability built atop of some, the language or runtime that doesn't provide that out of the box. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's a difference, for example, between Scala language and Java. Uh, so, uh, in Scala, uh, those immutability structures are, are like first-class citizens. And on the other hand, in Java, they are like crafted after the language uh, developed its own. So, sometimes it's it's dangerous even right, to use from the perspective of memory consumption. And similar, it's for regarding recursion and the pattern of using recursion, uh, recursive programming. So also in Java, uh, sometimes you may be really hit by problems with memory and and so on. And if you have language that is also first, like functional language from the beginning, it's easier. Yeah. Or everyone's favorite object-oriented programming pattern, the singleton. <laughs> Which... Is it's funny because I have yet to actually encounter. They're out there, but I've yet to encounter in the wild a situation where the singleton should have been used. But I think a lot of times it's someone who's eager to have said that they've used every one of the patterns that they learned in their design patterns class. Because you know I've seen some singletons that I've just kind of blinked, or especially in Python, just kind of blinked, rubbed my eyes, and gone, "This would be a module level variable. Why are you doing this to yourself?" Yeah, I don't think I ever used the singleton in Python, but in Java I used uh, singleton for connection pools. Yeah, that would make sense. And of course, Java doesn't play well with globals as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is one of those other trade-offs. Do you use a global variable or module-level variable? Do you use a static class? Yeah, the singleton that is a problem or overuse. As you mentioned, I even also uh, I have it in the first chapter of my book. So in the introduction, I'm trying to see the mo- most uh, overused or patterns that are not well understood. Uh, and singleton is there for, for the same arguments that you are right now mentioning. I mean, in, in Java, singletons are used more often, for example, in frameworks like Spring or uh, Quarkus for some business uh, logic units, right? Some some service that is doing business logic and it's injected into DI uh, only one instance of this, right? So that's, I mean, in Java, singletons are used very often, so and maybe also overused as well. So would you say that the that, that failure to grasp some of these trade-offs can actually lead to bugs? Yes, uh, I mean, at the, because right now we are speaking at the co- low level, right? Code level. I mean, this is only like subset of my of, of my book. I mean, three or four chapters are uh, regarding uh, bugs, but of course, I mean, for example, this this chapter that John uh, John wrote, this is chapter seven about daytime. I mean, using daytime, I think leads leads to 
a lot of bugs from introduction code. Maybe it's the top one place for bugs, right? reason for bugs, uh, using the time API and all the differences. I mean, each language has its own uh, specific uh, handling. Uh, sometimes, yeah, I don't know, with, with time zones and so on. Uh, so overusing or misusing date, uh, date time APIs is like, it can lead to really big bugs, right? That are hard to catch or maybe occurs once, once a year, right? Once a ten, one, once a set century even, and maybe you have a bad luck and you will have that. So for sure, that's, that's the one place. One of my favorites in Linux for years and years, it was kind of a few years ago, the printer driver bug that literally only manifests on Tuesdays. And that was on account of the of the formatting of the timestamp and uh, an error that was related to Tuesday as a you know as data. So I still love that because it's you know that's a won't fix. We are only in the context of planet Earth, right? I mean, John is, John is going into the details like what would happen if it will be, you know, multi-planetar civilization and we have some, you know, hubs on Mars and on Earth and what will happen with data APIs. So that's that's nice. If you are interested in something like this, I would recommend that uh, this oh, chapter. Man, that's a terrifying thought. I had never thought of that before. If we ever managed to have a presence on other planet, you know, human presence on other planetary bodies, what assumptions have we made in our code that are going to start manifesting as bugs oh that's terrible that's, i'm that's going to assume that you're going to need a phd to do anything related to time zones in that case probably wobbly timey-wimey stuff so i imagine though that some other of these trade-offs could lead to bugs if it affected the design because I mean it looks like a lot of this affects the design. Like you mentioned, balancing flexibility and complexity. You know that going the wrong direction, the design can. I guess the better way to put it is unnecessarily create a risk of bugs for yourself. You know, you're creating places for bugs to hide where you didn't ever need to create places for bugs to hide. So, would you say that these design considerations could? lead someone down a path that could give them more trouble than it's worth? Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, I think you, you are referring to chapter 2 when, when I'm speaking about duplication of code and, you know, on the universities all students are learned that uh, duplicating code is bad, right, in all, all the contexts, but that was like when we had uh, my uh, monolith application where all the code resides uh, in the same place and so on and then we were migrating to this microservices world uh, where each service should be independent. But on the other hand, we are trying to extract everything and make it uh, in the libraries and so on. And by that, coupling microservices with each other. And also sometimes the code that seems to be the same at the level when microservices are designed, microservices within different business domains will evolve in a way that it's not the same. But if you have the library, you will have the coupling and it's hard to you know, hard to uh, remove that coupling. Uh, so also, of course, as you mentioned, it may increase some uh, probability for bugs if you will go to the other direction, like more duplications and so on. So it needs to be like in the middle. You know. Strangely, I've seen some bugs that resulted in lack of duplication because 
code that's so dry, it's arid, is, is a, a line I've used in a couple of blog posts because, like, I made the mistake of reading the source code for GCC, uh, which is interesting if you want to see the difference between the two major C++ compilers in the open source space, which are GCC and LLVM Clang. The source code alone just underscores how radically different the two are because LLVM is very for the most part is very maintainable it's clean it's uh well structured gcc is a lot of things but i would definitely say it's very dry to the degree that to follow a stack trace you're going through about 50 or 60 files because it is so broken up into macros and subroutines and and functions calling other functions what's called other functions call other functions uh, yeah, I think it was by the time I hit the macros, I started crying because it just, it's so spread out. Everything is implicit and now. Yeah. Well, I yeah. mean, in Java, in JVM world, we know that from, from Spring. And uh, I mean, that's the one of the biggest problems in Spring, but everything is implicit and, you know, without the, the knowledge within the system, it's hard to reason about. But also there is another, like, aspect of it that maybe that's why this fault that you are mentioning this project went into that direction maybe that's the performance right i mean so if you need to optimize the code for the performance sensitive stuff sometimes the code will become less readable uh, so um, i mean that's in the java for example if you want to have some allied memory alignment or something like this uh, so that's also my chapter like chapter five uh, so it's about optimizing hot path and also finding the paths in your codes that deserve those optimizations and on the other hand if you would find that you will need to sacrifice something because sometimes it's the readability of the code and therefore maybe also the probability for bugs may increase but you have some real benefits out of it i mean that's the benefit is the performance in that case performance throughput or low latency and i imagine performance is probably one of the major goals the irony is that GCC's performance is not as good as Claim, which doesn't do this. So, you know, part of it is precedence, too, because GCC was written a lot earlier on. So there's just some technique, even though it's the same language, even even the same, you know, not, not really even using... And I mean, it's, it's C. It's not like C changes that often. So uh, given, you know, you can compare versions of GCC and Claim that are written the same edition, the same version of C... But what's funny to me is that it kind of crossed that threshold of becoming overly dry to where it actually started, instead of positively impacting performance, it got on the other side of that parabolic arc and started negatively impacting performance. Because, of course, then you have things like you have your instruction cast meshes and your... So you need, you need to handle every every case, right, in this, in this code. I mean, if you, if it's, you need to make it so generic that the performance is lost, I, I imagine, at some point. Yeah. If you have too many branches, right? For example, branch prediction, uh, you have this on, on, on CPU, right? That CPU can guess and learn which branch will be executed in the future. Uh, so if you have so so complex code complexity, uh, like ifs, then CPU will not be able to use branch prediction, doesn't, is not able to use uh, code cache, like L1, L2, and so on. So, yeah, I think it's 
Yeah, it, it, it really is interesting how many optimization strategies wind up being de-optimization strategies when they're used inappropriately. They're scalpels rather than baseball bats. And also, also it's regarding performance. Uh, sometimes I, I saw this pattern or anti-pattern that you are focusing on the wrong places in, in your code. I mean, I, I'm mentioning in this chapter the Pareto principle. I think it's applying to computer science very well. Uh, that uh, like a small part of your code is providing most of the value, business value, value and so on. And the uh, majority of the code is providing less business value. It's not so critical. And if you will try and will be able to detect those uh, those smaller parts and focus only on this area, your optimizations, uh, then you will have really overall increase in performance. I mean, I'm trying to focus on that and calling that hot path that was uh, important in the when I was working at Data Stacks, and I was working at the Java Java driver for Cassandra. You know, so that's the I mean my entry point for all JVM words. If you want to connect to uh, to Cassandra database, uh, so we had this distinction of this is a hot path in our driver, and we can sacrifice some of code readability and so on. But we know that every improvement in this area will give really significant benefits. Uh, to the overall like performance or maybe overall reduction of of resources and so on and other parts of the code that were not so uh, critical let's say were able to maybe use some pattern that uh, makes the code more readable and maintainable and so on I've been looking through our books and I think I found something that might help you and your horn, a reference guide. I think this is about the musical instrument, Jess. Oh, the unicorn is always reading it. So I thought it might have been about magic. It was worth a try. I wonder if Manning Publications has anything on the topic. We can still get 35% off any order from Manning Publications with the coupon code PODBUGHUNT21. Maybe there is a something in the hundred and the six volumes of documentation for the cafe. I have a question for you. What's your favorite book? Fictional or not? I'm gonna let you choose. Okay, mm, that's hard. I mean, I try to read a lot. I use this Goodreads app to like create a challenge. To motivate me as well. Uh, so right now, this year I, I think I have challenged for 40 books. Uh, so maybe I will pick uh, the uh, Homo sapiens book from Harari. This is about the history of mankind, right, from from the beginning uh, to the start of civilization. I mean, he has three three books: Homo sapiens, Homo Deus, it's for the, in the uh, about the future or potential future of of humans. And uh, third one is some uh, lessons for 21st century. So his predictions about the future. I mean, each of those books is great, I think. So it depends if you are interested more what happened before Homo sapiens, what uh, what what are the predictions, or where 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 the human civilization can go. Uh, it's Homo Deus. And if you want to have a list of those stuff, those things, then 25, 21. Uh, lessons for 21st century. Hmm. The thing I love about human history is how everything repeats itself. We went from banging on rocks 
to banging on shiny rocks, to banging shiny rocks into different shapes, to teaching shiny rocks how to do math. And we haven't really upgraded our tools that far. <laughs> yeah, I mean, those this Homo sapiens is not so like, strict about some specific period of the, uh, of time, right? About period of time. I'm, right now, I'm reading the uh, history of why the Roman Empire fallen. Uh, and that's what you're saying. I mean, they they were constantly fighting uh, in, inside of the of the country, but still managed to hold for so many years, like centuries. But it was repeating even like in periods like every uh, Caesar was the same as as the one before. You know, speaking of infighting, sometimes in projects we were talking about trade offs. Sometimes in projects. A lot of these issues are become surprisingly rife with politics and interpersonal issues and whatever, where where one person wants to optimize for performance and another person thinks, well, we need to get this thing out, or this one person wants to use PHP and the rest of the team is wanting to use, you know, Java Spring, or, you know. So, I mean, when you're getting into these topics, I mean, there's certainly actual components to consider, but are there any ways that you've found where you can navigate, you know, where there's more than just facts that are gumming up the works in terms of making these trade-offs? I mean, I see too, regarding those decisions about technologies stuck and so on, I see like two patterns. I'm The first one is when the business problems or problems that you are trying to solve are quite easy, and then people in that case, people tend to use sophisticated solutions for, for a challenge, for a sake of challenge. Now, on the other hand, if you have really complex domain or complex problem, like for example, creating database, people tend to use the easiest solutions. Easiest meaning that uh, you are able to reason about everything in the code. Uh, so those are two different organizations. I mean, I was working in both domains. And uh, in the second one, when you have really challenging problems, you are not focusing so much on the actual technology, trying to make it easier. Like, I was also writing about it in the chapter 9, uh, So, and it's a big, uh, a very important rule. I think that libraries that you use become your code. And if you uh, tell everyone that, okay, you can use the PHP or something like this, but every library that you, you will use, you will be owning that. If something will happen to our software, you will be able, you will be needed to fix that and reason why it stopped working. And in, in that approach, you are start suddenly to maybe uh, thinking that, oh, maybe I will not import the library, library or maybe I will just implement some small part of it that is crafted for my use case instead of importing something big that I don't uh, maybe trust entirely or maybe doesn't have so great quality or, you know, or maybe it's bringing you like megabytes of dependencies that you it will impact your your build or service or something like this. So that's good rule to start the discussion. If someone wants to add a lot of external stuff right, to the project. That's interesting because, you know, we've heard for so many years is the phrase, don't reinvent the wheel, which I never liked that phrase because I'm just like, you know... <laughs> Back to human history, how many times have we reinvented the wheel? We're not rolling around on stone wheels. We have reinvented it so many times for so many different use cases. And 
when I hear people say, well, don't reinvent the wheel, like, like in C++, there was a project I was working on where the developer that I was mentoring was needing to accomplish a particular task. And he had been asking in, in the C++ chat room, like, how should I do it? They're like, oh, just, you know, just use end curses. And he's like, I don't want to use end curses because, I mean, sure, it, it solves the problem, but it's huge. It, it, it's, a, it's another dependency, and it's not a lightweight dependency. And I don't need all of that. I just need that one thing. And he wound up rebuilding and being one of the few people to actually rebuild that one piece because we didn't need everything in end curses. The whole reason we were building what we were building is so that we could accomplish a particular task without having to have have a dependency like that but i think that that sort of knee jerk there's got to be a library out there somewhere i definitely think that that's come back to bite us and also there are two perspectives i think first is when you are creating a library that will be imported by other other projects other people in that case you need to be very careful because every they also will be treating you as as you are treating other libraries and other context is that when you are creating some service that's exposing some public APIs and you are encapsulating everything, in that case, it's a lot easier to, to migrate to something else, uh, some other solution. And in the first one, maybe it may be harder. Uh, sometimes, yeah, you need to be careful to not leak also the, uh, the API or lab or part of the library that you are importing. I mean, I have this also the chapter three about exceptions and handling errors in your code. And it's not only focusing on how to properly propagate this info, what patterns do you have, but also about the problem of treating exceptions as a part of your contract. So sometimes when you are importing a third-party library and you will propagate exception from the third-party library that you are importing to the caller, then it becomes your contract right? suddenly, right? Because the, the callers of your library will rely on that and maybe we'll build a logic around that and, and so on. So if you are, if you were leak this, uh, then you will be really a tight couple to this first part to library. I mean, there are some tools that allow you to detect that you are leaking some internal details of something that you are using, but it's not easy to capture. And it has, it creates big challenges in the future. If you will decide that this library is no longer uh, fit for our use case, or we want to improve it somehow. I think the move towards software bill of materials has been eye-opening for a lot of developers because, you know, they fire up Cyclone DX or whatever and they get their software bill of materials that lists all their dependencies and all the dependencies, those those dependencies and whatever. I mean, having an SBOM is, is mandatory for government contracts in the U.S. now if you're going to develop for U.S. government, you have to have the software bill of materials. And I imagine it's been eye-opening for a lot of people who think, oh, I've just got one dependency, big deal. And then they, they, they fire this thing up and they find like 40 libraries. How did that happen? It's like you're mentioning, you know, the libraries that were being brought in by the other libraries being brought in by the other libraries. And then, and then all it takes is one guy maintaining a color library for JavaScript getting more than a bit snarky about uh, about something and uh, turning his into uh, malware and then uh, takes down half the internet. Yeah, I think the problem with JavaScript and front-end stuff is even more, more dangerous because, as you mentioned, some security problems 
and so on. I mean, I'm not an expert in the front end, so I don't have the whole context, but maybe someone that is listening may give some context about front end and those libraries problems. I think Brian can give some context on front end. I never did uh, front end. My siblings do. I'm strictly back end uh, developer. <laughs> but I do have questions about uh, high level technology decisions. I know usually we spoke about uh, dependencies, but a bunch of time uh, we get a business requirement to a specific technology. For example, you know, when there was a hype cycle for MongoDB to be used everywhere because it was web scale. What does that mean? It's web scale. What's web scale? It's web scale. So how do you deal with uh, those hype cycles? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, this, of course, this, what I mentioned before, that it will become your cloud, or it will become your own, you will need to own that. Uh, so that's the biggest one. But also, like, verifying the technology that you are using, with uh, verifying if what they claim is true. Like, if you, you give this Mongo example about web scale, so the most important factor there is performance, right? So you can scale it on demand. You will have, uh, like, predictable latency, uh, high throughput, and so on. So this is what they are claiming. But on the other hand, uh, you need to verify what's true. Right? So to write uh, performance tests uh, for this solution uh, in your context, so in, your, in your context of your specific collection type or database model, uh, like do you have some relations between that? And try to model that and then uh, performance test this, this solution and see if it's still handling uh, what they were promising to to handle. If not, then maybe, or maybe even if, if it is, maybe evaluate also a second option and see if, if they are able to outperform the solution or not. And based on that, you can make some good decisions, not only based on the benchmarks of, of first party companies or internal to this, to this company. Hmm. Yeah. So we talk a lot about bugs, but, uh, can you tell me what's the weirdest bug you ever encountered? Yeah, that's the hard question. I mean, I don't think I have the weirdest one, but I mean something that I remember right now. And it will be right. It will be regarding working with date time and what we what you mentioned before. So uh, making like making components that are initializing date or operating on date without abstracting away it for the testing purpose. Like, for example, if you have this well-maintained library, like Google Guava, uh, you can inject time and advance the time and test it based on your uh, expectations and everything, right? Without waiting so long in the test, without sleeping and this, those anti-patterns. Anti but on the other hand, encounter some code that had this uh, didn't expose that info outside. So there was some internal, internal date or timestamp creation and the logic that based on the timestamp was tested in a, this weird way, like sleeping or waiting for, for something. And that was the, the first part. Right? So, and other part was like uh, relying on defaults, relying on defaults. In this context, it's relying on default system system time zone. And it will be a non-deterministic, right? Depending on when you are running that. But also, Relying on defaults is problematic, not only in the context of dates, but also using uh, like third-party code. So, for example, if you are using some HTTP client, I'm covering that in nine chapter. 
it's uh, about Caffeinate or one of the HTTP libraries that are uh, like in the Java ecosystem well known. So they are great, of course, but they are providing some defaults that may be bad for your use case. Uh, so and I'm speaking particularly about timeouts. Uh, so often the HTTP libraries are setting timeouts to really high values, like 10 seconds, or you can measure that in even in the seconds. But in real production usages, like setting timeouts so high, will can impact your deployment a lot. Like you can have cascading failures. Uh, we will have thread that is occupied for as long as the timeout is without getting the feedback instantaneously. Uh, so, I mean, setting timeouts is, is one of the most important stuff, I think, in the microservice architecture, for sure. Because even if you your service, like assuming that your service is dependent on other and also other services are calling your service, uh, if you will start having problems, you can cascade this failure to other services. And this failure may start only from this, the don't, that someone didn't set timeouts properly. I mean, relying on defaults. And what you have, yeah, so how, how to do it? I mean, also, I think performance testing, defining SLA and performance testing that would help you to uh, find out the proper timeouts. Or if you are calling a service that has a SLA defined, like, for example, the, I don't know, 99% latency will be around 100 milliseconds. Maybe that's the value that you should use or something like this. And to do not rely on defaults. But that's bad. Or at least understand the defaults. Maybe defaults are good, but you need to understand them. That was one, I mean, one of the most important and complex tasks in the Java driver. For Cassandra Java driver, there was a lot of settings there and picking the settings properly for general use cases. But on the other hand, there were some specific use cases uh, that required setting uh, those values, timeouts and pooling, uh, number of threads, and so on, uh, explicitly. You wrote this book with John Skeet, and some people will recognize that name as being the uh, rather legendary writer of answers on Stack Overflow. How did you end up working with John? Yeah, so when I had this idea for the book, I've created this uh, proposition for the book with description of the chapters, main ideas, and so on. And I've submitted it to to Manning uh, Publisher. And uh, the process for them is that uh, they are giving this uh, table of content and and this initial draft to top uh, selling authors, like best selling authors for Manning, uh, like 10 authors or so. And John was one of them. So he was basically reviewing this table of content that I was proposing. And he, he liked two or three chapters the most. I mean, like that he would like to also give his input regarding those topics. And the chapters were, were like, first one was regarding daytime, as I mentioned before. And second one is uh, regarding managing versioning and compatibility. So about backwards compatibility of your data, but also microservices, IPIs, uh, like uh, focusing on format like protobuf and so on. Uh, so he has experience uh, in that because he was working at Google with protobuf. So also he uh, thought that this chapter is, has, there is a great idea for the chapter and he can give more input on that. And we, yeah, and after that we started cooperating. That was the story. So he proposed to be a co-author of this book. Nice. That was, yeah, that was really a pleasure to work with him. Great cooperation. 
uh, he treated me as a co-author and each call we discussed a lot a lot right? he was reviewing the, the chapters my chapters as well I was reviewing his chapters also I had this initial idea for those chapters and he tried to be within those boundaries that I put at the beginning but of course I have welcomed all additions from his side uh, so for example the chapter uh, about versioning my initial idea was to base that on the Avro because I, I have more experience in Avro and this big data big data ecosystem like Spark, Hadoop and so on and he has more experience in Protobuf yeah, but at the end we decided that Protobuf is good as well I mean the tech and this particular technology was not so important, but on, uh, only the patterns there. So, yeah, that was that, that would be it. So, I am noticing that the, one of the things you discuss in the book is you're talking about requirements and defining requirements for success, basically. Requirements, I imagine, are one of those tough things because usually there's non. I don't like the term non-technical because you can have people who are capable of being technical from any any angle, but really non-developers. You can have non-developers who have to, or who want to help define those requirements. How can someone navigate, like ensuring that those requirements are setting the project up for success when you have to kind of explain some of these concepts to someone who isn't familiar with coding? How do you navigate that? So you mean more like at the architecture level, or is it more like business, uh, like cooperation between you know the business uh, teams or owners or something like this? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess any of the above, because it's a lot of times where you know you get you get business requirements that start leaking into some of the technical decisions, and and there are set of requirements and trying to get involved in the technical conversations. How do you bring these trade offs to the table? I mean, the great pattern for discussing those those things is, I think, creating design docs for or your features or your new product. I mean, such a design doc should uh, contain like limitations, the current limitations, uh, the proposed solutions, and ideally, you should have n solutions, not one. Uh, so, try to evaluate a couple of of approaches, right, with with uh, pros and cons, and list list those. Uh, it ideally, if you have enough time and resources, you could. Uh, start some POCs, so proof of concepts uh, for those projects and gather some you know, insights about all these problems and also list them in a like, not so technical way. And the other pattern would be also to not only write, but also graphical representation. I mean, some people are graphical learners, right? Uh, so it will make a lot of easier for them to reason about the system architecture and so on so to di- draw diagrams of like flow between components uh, business components also at lower le- level architecture and so on but i mean if you have a design dog you can get back to it and and treat it as this trade-off book right so you could get to it like after a year or so and try to see what was the decision what it, why it was made and what outcomes do we have right now well, thanks for uh, thanks for coming in and uh, chatting with us, Tomaj. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Thanks, thanks for the invitation. It was great to talk with you guys. How was that original Coke, by the way? It was as usual, good as usual. <laughs> good. They uh, pulled that one out of, I believe, 1920. 
don't worry, it's still fresh. Some of those portals don't necessarily go to our present time period. Hello, Bogondor's Cafe, just speaking. Certainly. We're open 24-7 at bughunters.cafe. And you can also find us on Twitter at bughunterscafe. Of course, all our music is provided by audionautics.com. We have a link on our website. As a matter of fact, you can win a copy of Software Mistakes and Trade-Ops by Tomasz Relic and John Skitt. For your chance to win, just retweet our Twitter post about it and then follow Bug Hunters Cafe for the announcement of the winner in a few weeks. You're welcome. Have a great day. Aha, this book is about unicorn magic. It looks like it's about playing the trumpet unless you're thinking about the specific information you want to find. Does that tell you how to use the horn then? Oh, I didn't say the instructions made sense.